Good afternoon, everyone. I know that we're all sobered by what has happened this uh, past week. My wife and I had a very fine trip to Washington, D.C. area and got to be there for Pentecost, and we were gone about a week, and then we just barely got back one day and two nights, and uh, immediately, in fact, the very next day after we got back, heard about the death of our dear friend and brother, John O'Gwynn. So it was a very uh, sobering time, and so we've had to be gone about, uh, I guess, uh, 10 days all of a sudden with uh, just uh, one day in between the last three days. So I need a haircut. My car needs a wash. Everything is going wrong. <laughs> but the big thing is, is, of course, the death of our friend, not those tiny things which are kind of insignificant by comparison. I should say welcome to all of our guests, too, and I deeply appreciate so many of my family coming back. Jim Meredith and his family from all the way from the West Coast, Michael and his family coming up from Florida now, and I think my daughter Rebecca is not here yet, apparently. There they are. Oh, good. I hadn't seen them coming in, so they were coming up from Florida, so they were going to be here for a Father's Day reunion, and uh, we're going to have that, but of course this is dampened somewhat by the terrible tragedy that we had. Anyway, up in Washington, D.C., we had 148 brethren there. It was a very nice crowd, and the brethren are very enthusiastic about God's work and the growth that we're having. And all over, I hear very good reports, so we're grateful for that. God has blessed the work in spite of the terrible tragedy that we had, of course, uh, in, up in Milwaukee. And it's strange how God turns things around. And we don't yet know how God is going to turn this thing around. We do not understand that. I do not understand that at all. But I know God says, he promises all things, he says that, all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we will see that in the end. I guarantee that that will happen. Some of us may not fully understand it until the resurrection because we're surrounded by physical things and we look at the physical rather than the spiritual. But many of us will understand if we are close to God, if we are spiritually perceptive, we will understand part of the answer. Not necessarily all of the answer, but we will understand all of the answer sooner. But we in the living church of God are truly sobered by the death of a very dear friend and brother. And I know that uh, I like to say all the perfect words today. I don't have all the perfect words. I wish that I did, but I'll do the best that I can. I've been very stressed, as you have been, and traveling up to Washington, driving at this time, driving back, and then hitting, being hit and praying and Everything else the next day and getting 20 or 30 phone calls the very next morning taking off for the funeral has kept me going, losing sleep and uh, being somewhat disoriented. I was working on my sermon even while I was sitting here to the last minute, which is a little bit unusual, but I'm trying to say everything. I wish I could preach a Gerald Waterhouse sermon and keep you for uh, four hours, <laughs> but I don't want to do that. And uh, they may pull the plug, you know, there's this trap door up here, and so I better watch out. But at any rate, a lot of us love John O'Gwen very, very much. It's going to be a very deep loss. I know my secretary, Monica, wrote to them, as Mrs. O'Gwen said, as her parents, and she loved them in a very special way. Many of us did. He had brethren from all over the United States who would write him, call him, ask him for advice, and those who had been in his church, even though he moved away from them or they moved away from him, they would still often call him long distance when they were in trouble or needed help because he was one who cared in an unusual way. He seemed to always have time for people, love people, serve people, gave himself to people in a remarkable way. And so it's a special shock, of course, that he died. And I know I've had a lot of things like that happen in my life that I did not understand before. I think about the time way back in 1958, going way, way back, 
when one of my two or three best friends on the earth, Richard David Armstrong, died. And I literally talked Mr. Armstrong into going into the Turner Stevens mortuary and putting our hands on the casket and asking God to raise Dick from the dead. And then as Mr. Armstrong was giving the funeral sermon later, he was not raised, I was kept looking up to the mountains and just above the cemetery there, as you know, in Pasadena and asking God to raise Dick from the dead. Now, in fact, for the last 20 or 30 years, I realized if God had raised Dick from the dead back then, it would not have been the right thing to do at all because of all the terrible things that happened in the work later and other things that I don't need to go into. It was not God's will at that time at all, and I could see that. John O'Gwen was also one of my two or three best friends, and he and I talked about that a number of times and in talking to his wife several times recently, a couple of times in person at the funeral and several times recently by phone. She said the same thing, that John regarded me as one of his two or three best friends on the earth. Even though we were not together geographically, we talked constantly whenever I needed a special help or counsel or encouragement, someone who could see the big picture, I would talk to him. He'd been one of my students. I didn't baptize him, but he was in my freshman class and I think Epistles of Paul and other classes. And I had known him and loved and respected him even from his college days. And after he graduated, why, he was a fine minister. And during the time of the apostasy back in 1978, why he invited my wife and me and they used the local church funds to get us there because headquarters didn't want to send me anywhere but to the moon perhaps at that time and Mr. Gwen used local church funds to invite me back to Corpus Christi so we stayed with the Gwens two or three days right in their home and got even better acquainted then later we stayed with them in Houston, Texas in their home later we stayed with them and I think I stayed with them at least twice back in Baton Rouge and then later I stayed with them at least four times in his home and and uh in uh, Kilgore, which is near Big Sandy, Texas. And he has stayed with me three or four times over the years in my home. And uh, I know last spring during the terrible uh, snowstorm, an ice storm we had, you remember, uh, at the time of the ministerial conference a year ago, a little over a year ago, why the winds and the falls, the Dr. Jet Falls were staying in our home, and we were snowed in literally. So we got a good long visit at that time. We couldn't go anywhere. And uh, we had to sort, sit and talk and think. And what a wonderful example the winds were and the falls as well, and we got even better acquainted in all the special meals in between. So I've lost a very, very close friend and brother, and some of the rest of you feel the same way. We want to remember to pray especially for the Gwynn family, though, because, of course, they're hurt most of all. Their father died, David of Gwynn and Charles of Gwynn, and, of course, Mrs. of Gwynn we need to especially pray for, because when you lose your own mate, the one you're with all day long, you share your hopes and dreams with, it really hits you. Jeannie is in a kind of a condition of shock right now, and that's what happened to me when my wife died, you know, about 29 years ago, and you don't fully understand what's happening. It seems like a dream, but later on, you suddenly realize you hear a noise, and you think they're coming around the corner, and they're, they don't. They're gone. They're not going to come around the corner anymore, never again in this life. So it hits you in a special way later on. So let's remember to pray a lot, and I hope you will pray, not just for a few days, but certainly for weeks and months to come, because that's when it really hurts. You're in shock for a week or two, but after that, the realization of what has happened hits a lot harder. 29 years ago, June 16th, 1976, I was awakened by my daughter Elizabeth, who is here. I'd asked her to do this. I often had heard that someone just before they died would revive a little bit, even though they were in a coma, and wake up and talk briefly. And I hadn't been able to talk with Margie, but I asked Elizabeth because we were taking turns watching her, and Elizabeth stayed with her all night long. 
in case she died or needed help or something. She was in a swoon, a kind of a half coma. She could feel pain, but she could not talk or communicate. I said, Liz, if your mother wakes up or seems to be dying and maybe she's coming back briefly, come up and wake me. So she came up about 5.10 or 5.15 in the morning and I came down and then she died and never could fully. I was there when she died, though, about five minutes after I came down. So exactly 29 years later, June 16th, 19 or 2005, I had to perform the funeral of my friend John O'Gwen. June 16th is not a happy day. But those things happen, just coincidence, of course. But 20 or 30 years from now, brethren, I know, and I know that I know, that those of us who are faithful and are in God's kingdom, we will look back, and even more 500 years from now, and a 1,000 years, but I don't think we'll need to wait it. Once we're born into God's family, our time, our sense of time and space and dimension will be totally different. We will have the mind of God. And we will think back and think, well, we understand now. And time goes on and the sun keeps revolving and the stars and everything else, you know, the way they do in the universe. And we will think back, this happened this and this happened there. And God let Dick Armstrong die. God let Mrs. Armstrong die. God let Mr. Armstrong die. God let all his servants die down through the ages, even those who were faithful. Some died in their 20s and 30s. Some died later on. My wife was only 40 years old when she died. I took comfort sometimes, you know, misery loves company. And when I was picking out her grave, I took comfort in the fact that just two graves away, there were two graves in between, the gravestone of Karen Pertoon was there. Karen Pertoon was the wife of John Pertoon, the brother of Al Pertoon, many of you remember, who was the executive vice president of the whole work for a while, a very much leading evangelist at one point. And I knew his younger brother, John, who was a minister for a while and taught science and so on. And here was Karen Pertoon, and I could see by the markers, the, the dates, that she lived to age 30. I thought, well, my wife got to live at least 10 years longer to age 40. So that was sort of comforting. It does not very comfortable, but you know what I mean. I thought everyone doesn't die at the same time, and Margie got to live 10 more years. Well, John and Gwen got to live 16 more years beyond that. If you look in your Bible, you remember how King Hezekiah when he was told he was going to die. Set your house in order. You're going to die, God said. And he turned his face to the wall and cried to God, prayed to God. I tried to serve you, have mercy. And God heard his prayer and turned it around and gave him a sign from heaven. And he lived 15 more years. And that was wonderful. How old was he when he died? 54. Go look it up. He was 39 when he died. I mean, when he was starting to die. But he finally died age 54, two years less than Mr. John O'Gwen. So as I've explained many times, brethren, you know this, you've heard me. I've often said it could be 10 or 15 years either way from age 70. If you knew that you're all going to die at age 70, you'd say, well, you know, 30 days to go. You think I'm going to keel over at age 70. Some die a little earlier and some die a little later. Now, that doesn't fully explain John O'Gwen's death. I know that, and yet we understand the big picture. God must have allowed his death for a certain reason, though, because he was such an outstanding servant of God. I understand that. I deeply feel that. But I still know God's overall purpose and plan and the way he does things. And I hope you understand and can try to see the big picture. He was a very dear friend to many of us, and we will never forget him. And we should not ever forget him in the example he set. Why did God allow this? Again, I'm assured, brethren, that 50 years from now, using that general number, going to be a lot less than that, I think. But 50 years from now, we will all look back. Certainly, if we're in God's kingdom, we will all look back and fully understand 
because we will be with our father and we will be going throughout the universe and we'll see the graves of our fathers and mothers and relatives that are still not resurrected until the great white throne judgment. But of course, by that time, we will see John again and he will be there because I'm assured he will be. I'm not God. I'm not his judge, but you know them by their fruits and his fruits were outstanding. For if we have remained faithful, are we going to remain faithful? And I'm talking to you, brethren, here, and I'm talking to you, brethren, all around the world whom I love and whom John Nguyen loved and served and for whom he gave his life in God's service. If we remain faithful, we will definitely have a glorified spirit body and we will be in God's kingdom and in God's family and we will have fellowship again with John and with so many others. As my wife Cheryl said the other day, at that time, if you keep living, she told me, until Christ return. Uh, and you're still, you know, in that sense, you, John knew you were still around at the first part of the resurrection. Since I was his friend, he may come up and ask me, well, Mr. Meredith or Rod or whatever he calls me. We hope he called me a good name. <laughs> what happened? How did the work grow? How did the work progress? Which ones were faithful? Which ones fell away? I wonder why they fell away. I hope no one fell away that I taught and trained and worked with. I tried so hard. So we won't honor John Ogwin and we won't honor God by getting all disconglomerated by the fact of life and death. That's not the way to honor our Creator at all. And that's being very, very short-sighted. So we need to think about, again, the big picture. Brethren, I know that my dear friend, John Ogwin, will be wondering about which ones of us have been discouraged and about which ones that perhaps have become cynical because of his death. He would not want that, and yet people get cynical. Well, you know, same thing happens to church people as happened to people in the world. Is that against the Bible? Well, it's against the Bible in the sense of thinking all the things happen are similar, but not death. God makes it very plain. It's appointed to all men once to die, and then the judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. That's not strange. God never promised, never, never, ever promised that every woman was going to live to be exactly 70 years old. And so many of his servants died before that time. Some lived after that time, of course. So we all need to understand death. That's my subject for you note takers and for the guys on the tape, if you want to write it down. Understanding death. We need to better understand all the trials of life more fully. Turn with me, if you would, to First Peter. Turn with me, if you would, to First Peter. Got to get that tea and get my throat going. I got a little nervous when Mr. Crockett turned to First Peter. I thought, oh, oh he's going to steal my scripture. <laughs> we sometimes steal each other's scripture at such times. But then he didn't. He went to First Peter 4, and my scripture is First Peter chapter 1. If you turn there with me. First Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. And that's the way it is translated here, by the way, in the New King James. Not born, but begotten. We're not born of God. We're just begotten who has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection. What's our hope? Eternal life in this, this life? Is that what God has said? No, he has never said that. Over and over and over throughout the New Testament, God talked about the resurrection. That is our hope, not eternal life in the flesh. So he's begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away. No, that will never fade away. A few years from now, John Ogwen will die, will never die again. And you will never die again. You will be given a body that does not get sick, does not deteriorate, never gets tired, never gets run down, and never, never, ever dies. That's our hope. That hope is reserved in heaven, 
or not going to heaven, but that promise and Christ coming and bringing that reward and that spirit body is in heaven now. It is now reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. God has all the power in the universe and don't let us ever forget it. The power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. Now? No. In the last time. At the resurrection. At the last trumpet. That's when it's all going to come together. That's when we're going to fully understand. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved, and we are grieved, brethren, and I am grieved, and I'm hurt deeply. I can't call John O'Gwen anymore. He was one of our very best preachers and teachers and writers and researchers and counselors in the whole world. I mean that. I know that. I know that profoundly. I'm deeply hurt. As Mr. Davy Crockett said, talking to me a little bit before the funeral with John O'Gwen's death, that not only creates a hole in our ministry and our leadership, it creates a chasm like the Grand Canyon almost. And we're aware of that. It's going to drive all of us to our knees more. It's going to drive all of us to work harder. It's going to drive all of us to have more faith in God. And you will see the answer. God will not forsake us. We are His church. We are doing His will. No one else understands what we understand. And we're not better at all. But the church of God has been given a profound understanding of why we're here and where we're going. And the way to get there and all the details, these churches out in the world, Jesus, Jesus, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Second Corinthians about another gospel, another Jesus, another spirit, they don't understand. They think they're already an immortal soul. They think they shoot off to heaven and all they need to do is get sentimental. What a terrible deception. They're not able to have the knowledge and the volition to get on their knees and grow and ask God to live his life in them and to know the way of life they ought to be living. They cannot learn that from those churches. No way. They don't understand who they are. We're thinking America the beautiful, America the beautiful. They don't know why we're great. They think somehow our founding fathers and the Constitution or whatever, our democratic process, our capitalism made us great. God is the one who gave us the promises through Abraham. And certainly some of these other things helped. But the big reason that we are great financially and the great power we've had is because of profound promises that God gave to Abraham. And we are the descendants of the sons of Joseph, right on down the line. Magnificent promises we've been given. Other churches don't understand that. They don't even understand what it means when they sing some of those songs. They cannot understand. And if the blind lead the blind, Jesus said they'll fall in the ditch together. So we need to appreciate what we do have and understand that we should be thankful. But right now we are grieved by various trials. And God said that through His servant Peter way back then. The church of God was grieved and many of them were dying prematurely, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, because they did not discern Christ's body, some of you sleep. Remember, 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Passover. They did not rightly discern Christ's body. Right in the church of God at Corinth, while Paul was alive, a number of people were dying prematurely. Why? Well, he said that was one reason. That's certainly not the reason Mr. Gwyn died prematurely. He had great faith in Christ and his sacrifice. But other reasons come into it, many, many other reasons. Maybe he had a great sympathy, a great heart, which he certainly did. Maybe in the horrifying things that are coming in the next several years as he saw some of his own brethren dying of horrible things, it, was, it left him distraught or hurt him. I don't know the reason. I'm just guessing wildly. I don't know, but he could have been. God does what he does and allows what he does in wisdom and in mercy. And he sees things we don't understand. And I've always understood that later after people die or some tragedy comes along. Years ago, there was a student in college 
just a young kid about 19 years old that came to college. Stars in his eyes, named Roy Preece. I'll mention his name. And he was starting to die, and he was in a horrible condition. I prayed, and I prayed, and actually fasted for four solid days. I was younger then, and I didn't do that. For four days that God would heal Roy Priest. Or maybe it was after he died, and I asked God to resurrect him. But I remember fasting for four days. Nothing happened. Years later, and I mean it was 10 or 12 years later, maybe more, I was at the Feast of Tabernacles in Big Sandy. And I mentioned this example of loving Roy Priest and not understanding why God let him die. And a woman came up. She wasn't young, but she was perhaps much older than, not a lot older, but somewhat older than Roy. And she said, Mr. Meredith, I appreciate what you did for Roy. She said, I'm Roy Priest's sister. I didn't even know he had a sister. And she said, I understand. And I think it'd be helpful for me to tell you that Roy had terrible diabetes. And he wanted his low goal for years was to go to Ambassador College. He knew that he would probably die prematurely. The doctor said that. And he, we knew that he had stuffed himself on candy bars. I'll tell you the rest of the story. We found a bunch of candy bar wrappers in his room. And apparently he got this urge and just didn't master it. And he gorged himself on 12 or 15 candy bars or something. And then he died. But she said he got his goal. He got to Ambassador College. He got baptized. He seemed to grow somewhat. And then he had this problem. And God let him die. And I did not understand about his problem until years later. She said the family was not terribly shaken. We were hurt, but we knew that Roy had achieved his goal. We didn't expect that he would necessarily live, and we weren't sure he'd even be accepted to Ambassador College. But he was so happy. He did get to go. He did get to be there for a year or so, and then God let him die. And then I understood. Later, I understood more about why God let Dick Armstrong die, which is other matters that are not necessarily. He didn't have some great big sin. I'm not saying that at all. There are other factors that I don't need to explain here. But I do understand it. I'll understand it even better than the resurrection. And God will help us understand why any of us have had relatives. Why did God let my wife die? Why did God let others die in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, their 50s? We will understand later. God is God. He allows these things to teach all of us lessons and perhaps to teach us the ephemeral existence that we have. You know, back in James, God tells us our life is like a vapor, just a wisp of smoke. Look it up there in James chapter. Well, in fact, it's right here. Uh, well, I'm just across the page here. I don't think that's in my notes here. So I'll turn to it here. James uh, 4, 14, right across from first Peter. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is even a vapor, just a little wisp of steam that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. A little wisp of smoke then comes out of the chimney and a little whiff of wind comes along and it's gone. And way up in the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars, the silent stars in the night keep right on shining. And those stars have hovered over the grave of righteous Abel, over Enoch, over Abraham, Isaac, Israel, Moses, David, all the servants of God down through time, all the martyrs of God in the, in the early ages of the church, those stars look down on them all. And so they look down on, you know, those who died among us today. They go right on. God goes right on. And God's purpose will stand. And we don't always understand his exact reason for every twist and turn in the road. And we're not supposed to understand. Paul tells us where to walk by faith. If you prove there is a real God, this creation did not put itself together. There's a great lawgiver, a great creator, a great designer, a great lawgiver. These laws are there. Someone made those laws. Someone designed this magnificent creation. A fool ought to understand that. 
It's all that my sarcasm? No, that's what God says. A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And when you see the magnificent prophecies that have worked out over and over, affecting ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, ancient Tyre, the Roman Empire, the United States, Great Britain, the greatest, you know, empire in human history. All over the earth, the sun never set on the British Empire. Why? Because the English was a great? No, because they were Ephraim. That's why. The great sea gates that control all over the world. That's why. Because of God's promise. No, God is God. He controls the rise and fall of nations. That great God is intervening now. And I tell you, on the authority of God and Jesus Christ, He is beginning to intervene at the end of this age. And we don't have that many more years, and we need to wake up any who are doubting that fact. And within the next five to ten years, you're going to see awesome things happen. I don't mean 20 or 30. These things are going to begin to happen within that period of time. Maybe the final part won't be for 15 or 20. God knows the exact time. I don't want to set an exact time. But most of you know that Mr. O'Gwen himself in Lesson 2 of the Correspondence Course is the one. He's the one who came up. Read it. Lesson 2 of the Correspondence Course with the dates. He didn't add them up, but you add them up and they come out for Christ's coming, as he indicated, about... It wasn't trying to set that as the absolute date, but about 2017. And that would mean, my brethren, if he's close or if he happens to be right, putting it that way, that the tribulation would begin eight years from next March, approximately. Eight years from next March. Is that going to be exact? Not necessarily, but it's something to think about. You don't have the rest of your life to fool around. John of did not fool around. John went, went out there, he sought first God's kingdom, he worked, he helped, he built, he served, he had his mind on that which is above, not on things on the earth. God help us to do the same. So we need to have that attitude and that understanding. So he said, you have been grieved by various trials. Back here in First Peter, yes, we're going through a trial and various trials. The trial of Carl McNair's death, the trial of the Milwaukee tragedy, the trial of this terrible death of John O'Gwen. We've had some of the older people die, Mr. Warrington, age 82, and, and, uh, and others. Uh, Mr. Dr. Torrance was almost 87 within a, a couple of weeks. That's not so unusual. They live past the three score and ten, so we're not talking about that. But these are other things for greater trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith, is your faith genuine? Or is your faith about one quarter of an inch deep? And the slightest thing comes along and bang, well, I got an excuse. Well, I'm out of here. Do you really want eternal life? Do you have the fear of God? Not of a monster. Fear means that deep awareness, that profound respect for the governor of the universe, the one who gives you every breath of air you breathe. If you have that deep respect, your faith will be deeper than an eighth of an inch. The genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Boy, we're going through fiery trials. And yet, brethren, when you think about what is ahead, and I'll come out on that a little bit more later, the trials we go through today are absolutely nothing compared to what we will go through and even more what the world is going to go through within the next 5 to 15 or 20 years. Nothing. And I hope you understand that. We all read about the tsunami in Southeast Asia. About a quarter of a million, a quarter of a billion people, we're no quarter of a million, we're dying out there. Horrible. Can you imagine that? The dead bodies washed up on this shore and that shore and that beach and that village all over the place, floating bodies out there over and over and over. Hundreds and hundreds of people in each village, dead, floating in the... In the we haven't had that. The world does have those things. But once in a while, God lets us have a little dose of humility by letting things happen to us. And this may be part of that, only a small part. 
even in spite of the fact the one who died in this case was unusually faithful. I have no question about that. I loved him and I still love him. And I look forward to seeing him again very soon, I hope. But we have this trial that our faith might be tested by fire and that we may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, His revealing when He comes again. So let's understand God's purpose in all of this. So let's go now, if you would, at this point to uh, uh, Genesis. And I'm going to uh, go to uh, the uh, book of Genesis, chapter 1. And here we find, of course, the very beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth became, because of an undoubted terrible heavenly battle, when Satan rebelled against the Creator, it became upset and chaotic. And darkness was on the face of the deep. God did make it that way, chaotic and all. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, who was this? This was the Logos, the spokesman, who became Jesus Christ, the Bible shows us. Christ speaking for the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. And in the Old Testament, he's called the Logos, the spokesman. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God began to divide the land from the waters, created, of course, the grasses and the trees and the animals. And finally, in verse 26, then God said, let us, not one person, a family, God the Father and His Son, as he became later. Let us, more than one, make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. So from the very beginning, God made us to be like he is. We were made in God's likeness, not just his outward form and shape, but to have the kind of mind, the kind of understanding, the kind of creative imagination that only God has, yes, to a limited extent. And yet remember at the Tower of Babel when they began to build this magnificent, tremendous skyscraper apparently, God said, this they begin to do, implying man had tremendous capacity even back then to go on and on and perhaps destroy himself off this planet prematurely before the 6,000-year time of testing was over. And so God scattered them and gave them different languages so they wouldn't do that so quickly. Yes, we're made in God's image. We're made from the beginning to be like God is. Turn, if you would, to the Psalms now. Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm, if you would, chapter 8. I want to pick up here in verse 3. I can read all these chapters, but we must not. David, the man after God's own heart, wrote, When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, this king who had been a shepherd boy out into the stars, night after night after night, looked up in that clear Palestinian air and saw the great magnificent heavens. What is man that you are mindful of him? A little puny when you're out under the stars all alone. I remember when Burke McNair and I were going on a baptizing tour, my second one, and I was the leader totally this time, back in 1952. About this time of the month, in fact, we had to wait a little while to get some money from Vern, the business manager, so we could go. <laughs> Finally, we took off, and because of the desert heat, we drove overnight from Pasadena, and next morning we had breakfast in Tucson, Arizona. But that first night, driving all through the night, why, uh, it took us a little more time than it was the kids today. I think the free words weren't quite as good back then in the cars, but we drove all night. And we had to have a pit stop, as we say, along the way. No uh, filling stations where we were. So we got out in this dark road, parked by the side of the road, or drove off on a little side road. And while we were there, I personally just walked up this road a ways, maybe just 30, 50 yards up in the pitch darkness, hoping there weren't any rattlesnakes there. Beautiful stars out that night, perhaps the moon, I don't remember. 
But I looked up all alone out there. Never forget, just certain scenes come back to you, you know, later on. And I realized, boy, I'm small. Look at those stars. And here Burke and I are all alone, two young kids. I was 22 and he was 21. And we're going all across the United States in this car. We're going to baptize people old enough to be our parents, old enough to be our grandparents, and some old enough to be our great-grandparents. In fact, the first man I ever baptized, I think, or one of the first, was named A.M. Coffin on the previous tour. I was 21, and he was 84, exactly four times my age. But at any rate, I just realized how weak we were, and I just had a silent prayer to God out there under the stars that God would help us and guide us and use us, and he did. He delivered us again and again from rattlesnakes, from copperheads, and from uh, especially water moccasins, I'm trying to think, in those swamps where we baptize people at night sometimes. You could see the snakes going away, and we tried to frighten them away. And luckily, none of them came back. All kinds of things. The southern sheriffs, some of you are from the south, forgive me, but they were pretty mean back then. And when we were talking to the black people, trying to help and encourage them, why these guys would come and, oh, you're talking to such and such. They used the bad word. The, you know, and uh, we said, no, we're just servants from God. We're, we're uh, college theology students to baptize these people. We're not civil rights workers. And we tried to help them know we weren't there. You here to stir up trouble? No, we're just to baptize these people. We don't even have a local church. Then the sheriff on two different occasions would park his sheriff's car up on the side of the bluff and literally sit there and watch us as we baptize these people. And one sheriff followed us all the way to the county line. He wanted to assure these these Yankees from California got out of there before they stirred up any trouble. We never got thrown in jail, but a lot of threats came along. We had guns pointed at us. Luckily, no one ever shot those guns. We went up to one little tiny guy, quite a bit smaller than me, and he had these little tiny kind of, uh, what do they call them, uh, glasses and uh, uh, he was wearing. And we went to baptize his wife, and he came out to the fence. He had the gate locked. And we were kind of go in, and he pointed that he said, "You fellows, he had this uh, 22 or 38. It was just a 22 uh, or 30, 30, I mean, but it was big enough to kill or hurt you, I'm sure, and certainly kill you if he shot you exactly in the heart, even at 22." And he said, "You guys from Mr. Armstrong?" And we said, "Well, yes, we're just here to talk to your wife, and we're glad to have you." I couldn't even finish the sentence. He said, "You get." I said, "No, no, we're not going to bother anything, sir. We'll just let you be there, and we'll, you get." And we, I tried to talk some more, and then he turned the point gun right at me, and he cocked the trigger, and he said, you better get. What did we do? Did we bring fire down from heaven? No, we got. <laughs> and God had to take care of it, and we were later to write her, and she was able to be baptized later. But it didn't work out on that occasion. But at any rate, lots of things like that makes us realize how small we are. So... What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And the Hebrew word here was Elohim. Us human beings made in God's image are made a little lower or a little time for a little while lower than the Elohim, which may imply even God himself on occasion. Certainly it could be translated angels. It sometimes is. Sometimes means actually God. We're made a little lower for a while. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. In God's plan, we're going to be magnificent later on if we can humble ourselves and be willing to fulfill the purpose of human existence, which no other church understands except the church of God descended from Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And that's the truth. No other church understands that. You have made him to have dominion, rule, government over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. And as Hebrews 2 tells us, of course, eventually that includes the whole universe. And we preached that part. 
That's not my purpose today, but God has that purpose for us. His purpose is not eternal life in this flesh. His purpose is to make His full sons, spirit beings, in God's kingdom to live forever and to put us through this veil of wrath and tears, which is like an obstacle course at times. We have to get on our belly and crawl underneath a live machine gun fire, so to speak, as the Marines sometimes do, training for combat. We have to go over the hurdles and around these and through the water holes and everything else like the obstacle courses of the CBs and the Marines and, the, and the, uh, the rest of the people like that, the military that have strict training. We have military training, but in a spiritual sense. And we've got to be willing to go through that obstacle course. We've got to be willing to pass the tests and have faith and put our faith and trust in God. And brethren, that's not easy, but that's what we'd better do. And we've got to learn that lesson so we're made to fulfill that purpose. James chapter 4 now, if you would. And I guess I already gave that where we're a vapor. So I won't turn back there. Let's go now to Hebrews chapter 11. Turn to Hebrews. I'll skip James. And where that's the scripture that said we're 11. We're a vapor. We're just here for a little while. Turn to Hebrews 11. This is called the faith chapter. And as you know, brethren, after describing all these great men and women of God and all the things they went through, God tells us here in Hebrews chapter 11, and beginning, if you would, in verse 13, these all, not some of them, all died absolutely faithful. Some died earlier. Some died very young, frankly, when you read the stories of other lives. Some died later. All died in faith. I've told you before how this young man, a vibrant young evangelist, a man full of faith and power, it says, in chapter 6 of Acts, Stephen the next thing you read, his head is being smashed and crushed by rocks. Then you read about James, the original James of the 12 apostles, and how he had his head chopped off in Acts 12, verses 1 and 3. And then even earlier, you read about the one Jesus said, no greater prophet has ever risen among men except John the Baptist. What did he do? He had a wonderful long life and died at 97? No. He had to do without a wife. He had to do without wine. He had to do without all kinds of things. All his life was under a Nazarite vow. And then he prepared the way for Christ, preached faithfully and powerfully. Never was allowed to perform any miracles at all. No sign was done by John. And what was his reward? An executioner, perhaps with two big gods, guards to help him hold him down or make him lie down, went into his cell and chopped his head off. And took his head, dripping with blood, put it on a platter and brought it before this wicked woman to give it to her at the birthday of, uh, of Herod. What a wonderful reward. Think about it. John Gwynn didn't do that. He died peacefully in his own bed at home. The only thing we don't fully understand is why as soon as it was, and maybe it would have seemed more heroic if he had died as a martyr, you know, directly in the sense of having uh, some outsider kill him. But God allowed him to die. And he got to live 56 years, way beyond John the Baptist, way beyond James, way, way beyond Stephen, and have that wonderful time of service in God's work where people all over the world have loved him and honored him, and he was able to lay up a great deal of reward. And brethren, if I don't think to say it later, please focus on this. I mean it with all my heart. John of Wen was probably better in his Christian life than most of us probably including me. I mean that. He was a very clean, dedicated man. He has it made. I don't have it made yet. Maybe there are lessons that I need to learn. Maybe God allows occasionally a fine, completely pure, tender-hearted, giving human being to die 
But those of us who are a little more hard-headed, you see, God has used my pushiness and my drive to help lead the work. Does that mean I'm better than John O'Gwen or Dick Ames or Mr. Bryce or Mr. Parting or anyone else just thinking of other evangelists? No. No, I know that. I know that. He's just using those strengths I have. Not because I'm better, but maybe those strengths can help get the work done. And John was a merciful man. And when you hear about what's going to happen in the future, maybe God allowed him to die in mercy. That might have been part of it. Again, we don't fully understand God's mind. But these fellows and these women, faithful, all died in faith, not having received the promises, not and been, but having been assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And that's our attitude, or what our attitude ought to be. We're not here forever. We've got to realize we are strangers and pilgrims on this earth. I've warned my son Jim to get out of the wicked city of Los Angeles, the La Sierra de Madre de Los Angeles. But the wicked angels are circling around out there. I'm partly kidding now. Don't want to offend our Southern California brethren. And now in just the last couple of days, as I read in the paper this morning, four earthquakes have recently struck out there, two off the Pacific coast and two more right around. And a lot of people are thinking this, as it sometimes is, may be the preparation for the big one. The seismic faults are getting restless. Who knows when a lot of that is going to begin to happen? Later this year, next year? I don't know. You see, God doesn't tell us every twist and turn in the road, but these things will happen. And there will be earthquakes such as has never been before in human history. And there will be wars, and there will be famines, and there will be disease epidemics such as has never been before in human history. It will be a time of trouble so great that there's never been a time like it since the creation of the world, the way it is worded there in Mark chapter 13 and that version of the Olivet Prophecy. That's what Jesus said. He should know. So these people recognize we're here for a little while. We may have to leave Los Angeles. We may have to leave New York. Eventually, all of us are going to have to leave Charlotte, and God will call us. Some of you say, well, you're not perfect. If you give the word, I'm not going to follow you. Well, maybe I will die, and the next guy will be more perfect. I hope he will be. But if I'm still here, and I'm the one that gives the word, brethren, I'm weak, I'm, I'm a human being, but God has revealed to me it's time to go, then I tell you in Christ's name, you'd better go. You'd better say, okay, merit is not perfect, but he's God's servant, and the fruits of the work are there, and I'm going to go. I used to tell people that about Mr. Armstrong. And I said, brethren, I understand Mr. Armstrong's faults. He did things I would not have done. Maybe he spent more money or took more trips or did this or that. You know what I mean? I could sit around and judge him all day. And you could sit around and judge me all day. But I said, if that man that I know is not a wild-eyed nut that has said all these things that taught us the whole way of God, and God is obviously using him in spite of his human nature... If he says, let's go, all right, I'll leave my home behind. Maybe the county will repossess it, something, but I'm going to get out of here. I'd rather take my chance with God's true servants than with this world. I'd much rather do that. So you have to think about it. How real is God to you? We're nearing the end of an age, and we've got to have our mind on the city of God. They looked forward, and they said, that they prepared for that heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, the glorious new Jerusalem that is eventually going to come down. So we must really understand all that. And, you know, Mr. Gwynn believed in these verses. Do you? Down through the ages, hundreds of thousands, or thousands, I should say, hundreds or thousands of God's faithful servants have been or have died, you know, before age 70. We know that. Hundreds, probably thousands. 
I've often said it may be 10 or 15 years either way. We must understand that God's, in God's supreme wisdom, He allows some Christians to die, quote, prematurely, unquote. He always has. That is not something new, brethren. It's just not new at all. They don't all die for the same reason. Sometimes it's probably to test the rest of us. Maybe I'm not ready for the kingdom and I need more time to grow. And I think I do. Maybe you need more time to grow. Or do you? If you understand that you do, maybe that's why you haven't died. Maybe God will give you that extra time. Maybe Mr. Gwynn was more ready than we are. So let's honor that. And that may well be part of the answer. Not the whole answer. That may be part of the answer. And I think it is. That's part of the answer. Only part. Back in Luke 18 is a scripture that I read at the funeral. And Mrs. Gwynn and her sons wanted me to read this. So I'm going to read this here for all of you. Because just as Mr. Ames said, about just under 400 people were at the funeral. But this tape, and if I don't make too many mistakes, we'll make it a must-play because of the needs of the church. And so we may have four or five or 6,000 people hear this tape, and it can help more people. But back in Luke 18, Mrs. Gwynn requested I give this example and, and so on. It says in Luke 18, verse 1, Then Christ spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Learn to pray always, brethren. If you pray always, if you study regularly, if your mind is being cleaned up regularly by this word, you focus on what is important and not on stupid stuff. And saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and regard man, and there was a widow who kept crying out, avenge me, or as the margin says, vindicate me. He didn't necessarily be avenged, but vindicate me of my adversary. And he wouldn't knock for a while, but finally he said, as you know, kept coming, Though I do not fear God or regard man yet because this widow keeps coming, keeps coming. She's going to wear me down. Very persistent widow lady. I will vindicate her lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Christ said, listen to that. Were to keep coming and keep coming to God, obviously. That's part of it. And shall not God avenge or vindicate in his time? It looks like John O'Gwen is dead. Well, you know, some of these other churches don't have men die quite as often as we do maybe recently. Maybe some in the world don't die quite as often. I, I read Christianity Today magazine, and if I need to, and maybe I should do it in an article, maybe Mr. Bomer and others can help me get a bunch off their website or something and help me get a whole bunch of examples. But every now and then I'll read in this big mainstream Protestant magazine about some of their very fine young ministers, some administrators, some leading men over a whole big church works that die, at age 27 or 39 you know, or 42 or whatever it is. They have people like that all the time. They don't say the end of the world is coming. They know that's what happens in this human flesh. And we better have at least as much faith as they do. But at any rate, he will vindicate us in his time. How? First, he will show his power by intervening in world affairs in the way we have said. We don't know the twists and turns, but brethren, we do know the big picture and it has been working out. Secondly, He will vindicate us by resurrecting us from the dead. And they won't be ready, those folks, unless they repent. Are they bad? Are we better than they? No, they're not called yet. I'm not any better than my father was at all. He may have been better than me as a human being or better than my mother. My old Methodist grandmother was a wonderful woman who taught me, you know, certain things out of the Bible and a love for the Bible. She used to read to me when I was a little boy. I never forgot that. She helped me. But near the end of her life, way up in her 80s, she only lived to be 91, I talked to her and I said, Grandma, you know, you're keeping the wrong day. And I was kind of pushy. I was just a kid, you know. I mean, I was in my teens or early 20s trying to convert my grandmother. Well, she was too late to be converted. But she was sincere. She kind of were not. And she wasn't mean. She just said, well, I don't, I don't understand. I think Sunday's the Sabbath. She had a good attitude. She just wasn't called. 
Was that her fault? No, God did not call her yet. But when she comes up, my grandmother was a hell for leather Methodist. <laughs> she, she, really, she was something. She's the one I told you about before. Very strict, very sincere. She helped people all over Joplin. And as a boy, I really didn't get to drive my dad's car very much because he had an old uh, 32 Buick. And I still drive a Buick, kind of a family tradition. But at any rate, I didn't get to drive the car very much at all because it was an old car and he was afraid I'd tear it up. It's the only car we had. And, uh, but once in a while, he'd let me drive the car to the cemetery to take grandmother to, to decorate grandfather's grave. And the other time, the only other times like that were when I would get to drive her out to the edge of town and she'd be bringing a great big basket of food for these poor miners' families that were out at work. The mines were lead and zinc mines. That's what built Joplin. They were all closing down. And they lived out there in weak little huts and old poor houses with linoleum and beat, you know, on the floor and tin can shanty places, some of them. And she'd take them food and maybe have a word of prayer with them. So I went along with her and that was good for me as a young kid to see grandma in action. Maybe she'll be, have a greater reward than I do. I'm not jealous of her. She may. Boy, when she goes after it, when she's converted, you better watch out. <laughs> Grandma's going to go for God with all her heart when she understands. She doesn't understand yet. And some of these other Protestants the same way. But we do understand. God holds us accountable for the knowledge we have. And unto whom much is given, of him shall much be required. And those of you who do understand had better act on that knowledge. So then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God vindicate his own elect who cry out day and night? Who are God's elect? Pray once or twice a week? No, they cry out constantly, two or three times a day or more, crying out to God, though he bears long with them. I tell you that he will avenge them or vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Indicating a rhetorical question here, they might not be very much faith. And brethren, that's the way it is. And Mrs. O'Gwen said, please tell the brethren that I am not shaken by this. And she's not. She's hurt. But she said, I, John would not want people to fall away because of his death. That would be the worst thing they could do. And that's the truth. That was his whole life, teaching people to believe in the God of the Bible and the true God. And so we better not give up and quit because of some one person dying. That's the last thing to focus on. Don't focus on, as she said, some particular physical thing, focus on the great purpose of life. Focus on the big things. Focus on the spiritual things. If you learn to do that, the little things won't bother you. They may temporarily bug you, but they won't overthrow you, put it that way. Focus on the big things, on the purpose of human existence, which this church does understand and has the privilege of understanding. Again, not because we're greater, but because of God's mercy. He has called us now. So we need to understand that and have that faith in God and focus on the big spiritual purpose of God. Let's turn now to Psalm 116, if you would. Psalm 116. Here we find God's mind, the way God thinks about life and death. Psalm 116, if you would, at this point. And, uh, no, it's actually a verse, uh, yeah, one, Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. In God's sight, that's precious because they have made it. They have had the right attitude and God is happy in that way. He says, here is a human being who has truly walked with me and I am now able to make them a full member of my family. They can't fall away. They can't turn aside. Now, that's precious. And that's where Mr. Gwynn undoubtedly is at this time, resting for a few split seconds compared to eternity 
until the resurrection, until the last trump sounds. Turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Here is the patience of the saints. We've heard this scripture. We want to focus on that. The true saints of God are not those who keep a different day and say, well, the Sabbath isn't necessary and we can water down God's laws about divorce and remarriage and about going out to war and killing people. No, all the rest. Here is the true patience of the saints of God. Here are those who keep the commandments, not new commandments of Jesus, as the Protestants sometimes try to work it in. No, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, it is in the genitive, it is in the possessive form, not faith in Jesus, the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, verse 13, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from here on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And I'll tell you, Mr. Gwynn worked awfully hard going back and forth and back and forth all over the Confederacy. He literally gave his life in God's service. He's getting some needed rest. If that's the reason, may not be, might be part of it. But at any rate, blessed are they. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And brethren, as Mr. Ames commented, and as I said at the funeral, Mr. O'Gwen has served and produced about as much as anyone in this work in so many ways. He has written three very fine booklets, The Beast of Revelation, Revelation Unveiled, and God's Church Through the Ages. He has written literally dozens and scores of articles in the Tomorrow's World magazine, the Living Church News. He has written 24 magnificent lessons of the Bible study course. And I hope all of you, now that he's gone, may appreciate it even more. Get that course out and study that course. Don't just read it. Look up the scriptures. Study that. It's one of the most important contributions that man ever made. That will outlive him. That will keep right on going. And as Mr. Ames mentioned, his programs will continue to be played for a few more weeks. And perhaps the greatest or one of the greatest contributions of all for those of us who knew him is an example of kindness, of love, of dedication, of mercy, of forgiveness, of faithfulness will always be with me, will always be, I'm sure, with his family, will always be with many of us who knew him very well and spent hundreds of hours, or in the case of many of you, thousands of hours with him personally. That was a fine example. His work is not over. So their works follow them, and we can be grateful he did those works and set that kind of example. So let's understand. Some of you might say, well, he said, if uh, 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 Christians, even true Christians, die prematurely like this, Mr. Gwynn's dead and Mr. McNair's dead and you have these people in Milwaukee, well, maybe it's just better to go back to the world. I'll just use this excuse to just go back to the world and forget all this church stuff and I'll get to enjoy life. A lot of people are probably thinking that right now. Oh, Really? You'll go back to the world and you will enjoy life. How wonderful. How wonderful. Turn back here, if you would, in this same passage, Revelation 14 to verse 8. And I'm not being wild. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Christ is the revelator. This is what he wrote. Revelation 14, verse 8. Then I saw another angel here at the end of this age, flying in the midst of heaven, preaching the everlasting gospel to those who dwell on the earth, saying... Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And that judgment is going to come within the lifetimes of many of you, perhaps most of you, brethren. And worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water, the great God who created everything around us. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen. Yes, a lot of things are beginning to happen. Modern Babylon was sort of getting underway over there in Europe. 
They had 25 nations. Now some people say, oh, it's never going to work because they've fallen apart and the French have rejected their constitution and the Dutch have rejected their constitution and nothing's going to happen. Oh, no. That's probably going to push them closer to the end because now they've got to regroup with an inner core. And that's what they're talking about in the European papers. And I read it while I was there. That's what Mr. Winnell tells us. He's there all the time. An inner core. And that core will eventually become 10 nations under the woman, the great false church. You know, there were times when different ones of the Protestant uh, ministers, you know, like Tim LaHaye and all these other Protestant so-called prophetic ministers, blat out their mouth. And they're saying, oh, well, the, the great, the ten nations, you know, that are going to rise up there, the Arabs. When the Arabs looked like they were the biggest danger, you know, back during the oil crisis earlier. And they said for a while, oh, it's going to be the Russians and the Soviet Union and all their republics. Oh, it's going to be China and all their different regions of China. And that's going to be it. No, it's not. Mr. Armstrong never said that. He always said, no, it's going to be where the woman is. And the woman has always been in Central Europe and the Catholic countries. And that is where the beast is going to be because the woman rides the beast. He stuck right to that continually. He never varied half an inch. And I was there with him. And I've been in this knowledge for the last 55 and a half years. And I know what I'm talking about. He always knew. And the true church of God always knew. So this beast is going to get together. This present pope is a German, was a Hitler youth movement leader. He was in all that stuff. He's very smart. He's very careful. He's very calculating. When I was in Ireland, as I told you perhaps earlier, this great big magazine like the old time magazine, the big oversized magazine came out with the Pope Benedict picture, Ratzinger. And they said, have this picture, be afraid, be very afraid. That was interesting. And they told his background and they didn't understand it the way we do exactly, but they let people realize what might happen. I'm sure some Protestant group put that out, but I thought that was remarkable, especially in Ireland. So this great beast finally gets together. And if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, which is frankly going to be most of the people in the world, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest. You're going to go back to the world and have a good life. You might sort of have a halfway good life for a very few more years. But compared to eternity, it's like a few seconds. And it'll be over awfully quick. And within the next four to eight years, ominous events are going to start happening in Europe. A different type of leader is going to rise up and you'll sense that hatred and that feeling. And you'll see this great false church rise up with much greater power. And these earthquakes, these disease epidemics and all are going to hit. And they will hit, my brethren, maybe even in less than four years. I'm just using round terms here. And so these people are going to suffer terribly. And this is real. This is what Jesus Christ said. He's speaking these words. And then you go here to beginning in verse 16. Let's skip down to verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle to the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar who had power over fire. And this angel cried with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The people on the earth were ripe for a spanking. They were ripe for punishment. So the angel thrust in a sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles. You say, oh, that's just picturesque. Maybe so. Maybe so. I'm not saying it isn't, but it may well be true when you get hundreds of thousands of people dying all at once. 
the blood is going to be up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And then it goes into the great seven last plagues and all these things are poured out that I don't need to read. Those things are very, very real. And even before those things, you're going to have the great tribulation, which is so great that there's never been anything like it before, known or ever shall be. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, as you know, and except God should cut short those days, no flesh should remain alive. Cosmicide, man would blast himself off this planet. So we do need to grasp what we're living into, the reality of what the great God is talking about and be willing to give ourselves to his purpose, even though there are trials and tests. Yes, we have had trials and tests. We do have trials and tests. But that doesn't mean God's gone off and forgot us. God did not go off and forget the church because Stephen died. God did not go off and forget the church because John the Baptist died. God did not go off and forget the church because James died. God did not go off and forget his people when all these other people described in Hebrews 11 died and many others who died even after that was written. No way. God will never leave us nor forsake us, but he does allow us to be tried. He does allow us to be realized we're weak. Our life is like a wisp of smoke. We're here for a little while. We need to love each other help each other, forgive each other, serve each other, lay down our lives for each other while we are here. Otherwise, we may not be here. And otherwise, if we live on that way, we'll be in even worse shape in the great tribulation and in the wrath of God. So these events are going to begin to take place. And as I said, this is Christ's message. He spoke the words of Revelation. And many of these events are going to start happening in the next several years will probably all be completed within about the next 8 to 18 or 20 years. Our work is going to grow right after the Milwaukee tragedy. It's amazing. We didn't plan it. It's nothing I did. We're not smart. It seemed like God gave us that and we weathered it. And Satan undoubtedly had part in that. I don't know if he had part in this, but he certainly had part in that event. That man had a wild look and everyone said that was not the Terry Ratzman they had known, those who were his friends right there. The fiendish look came. He was undoubtedly influenced or possessed by a demon and began to shoot seven of his own brethren. And finally, his friend said, Terry, why? And then he looked kind of funny. His whole countenance changed. And then he took turned and blew his own brain all over the wall. He realized something. His sense sort of came back to him. But brethren, God is going to allow a lot of tests along the way. But also, we are going to grow. And right after that, we got on a big station in Memphis. We got on a big station in Houston, Texas. We've been getting to get on, to get on there for years. Now we're getting on a big station in Big D, Dallas, Texas, in a few weeks. And then we got on this nine network in Australia, which we didn't even know about before, covering all of Australia more thoroughly than ever. And then perhaps most interesting of all, we got on the Inspiration Network over there in Britain with their satellites reaching much of Western Europe, Northern Africa, and the Middle East. And as I said, I've even personally read letters that Mr. Story over there showed me from Vienna, from other places in Western Europe, from North Africa, and from the kingdom of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. Letters are starting to come in from all over as people find out about this station and we're able to reach them. We prayed for years that would happen. And all of a sudden, it's dropped right in our lap. We tried to go after some other station. It fell through. And all we could do was pray. And suddenly, this thing just opened up. It seemed like a few days or a few weeks. It wasn't long. Later, God just dropped it right in our lap. And then we'd been negotiating for just a local ad in the Dallas-Fort Worth region in Reader's Digest. And that was going to be a trial ad. And Mr. Crockett was our point man to negotiate with his business experience, doing a very fine job. But the woman he negotiated with there at their headquarters was sick or gone one time when he called. 
and he was bumped up to her supervisor who was a vice president or something like that, a top dog in the whole network, the whole uh, outfit. And he said, well, Mr. Crockett, he needed to check our file and call him back. And he called back and he said, well, uh, you can do this if you want to, but I have something better to offer and special. Someone had apparently canceled an ad, a whole page ad in the August edition, which will be out, my brethren, in about, I imagine, about five weeks. It's going to be out before the first of the month. You know, it always is. So within five or six weeks in what they call the mature edition of the Reader's Digest, and that will be in four and a half million four and one-half million households within a few weeks. And we have a full-page ad in there advertising Mr. Wynn's booklet on Revelation Unveiled. Wow. Four and a half million. So if we get a 2% response even, we might suddenly have 90,000 more Tomorrow's World subscribers. If we have 1%, which is more likely, Mr. Pyle feels, and you have more faith. <laughs> I'm kidding. We hope for two, of course. We don't know we'll get it. But even 1% would bring us 45,000 more responses, just like that. But we hope it will be 2% or, of course, more according to God's will. We can begin to get out a message, a witness, even for those who don't respond immediately. Plus, many thousands more will be on the Tomorrow's World list regularly and beside getting the booklet. So we're very grateful for that. And it was given to us for about one-third the normal price, or one-half, I guess. Anyway, we're very grateful, and that worked out in a most remarkable way. Christ is behind His work. You will see that. You'll say, well, what's the lesson? Is Christ going to vindicate us? Yes. Will he vindicate us tomorrow? Maybe not. But watch. That's all I can say. Watch the progress of this work for the next several months and the next two to four years and see who is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, the true name of Jesus Christ, the full message, and getting out the prophecies and the Ezekiel warning more powerfully than anyone else on earth over the next few years. And I think you'll see how Christ will vindicate us in that way if we're faithful and if we don't give up and quit. And we'd better not do that, me or you or anybody. Turn to First Thessalonians, if you would now. First Thessalonians. And I'm going to be reading now a very familiar scripture, but let's cover it nevertheless. I'm not going to read all the scriptures on the resurrection here. I did a lot of that at the funeral. But First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul wrote, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you sorrow as others who have no hope. Do we sorrow? Yes, we do sorrow. It really hit me after the funeral almost more than before. I guess mercifully I was in kind of a state of shock and then later it began to hit me. I'm never going to see him. I can't call him. Uh, he's not there anymore and I won't see him again for several years at least. And it hurts. Of course it will hurt. Mrs. O'Gwen and her family are really hurting. And in another two to four weeks or months, she's going to be having a quiet suffering that will go on for many months. Please pray, pray, brethren, as brothers and sisters for the Gwyn family. But we do sorrow. But one thing we do not do, we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. I had an aunt and a very nice lady, but after her husband died, she simply pulled down the blinds, so to speak, shut herself up in her house. She was the wealthiest one of all my mother's sisters, had money. She could have traveled to Europe, all over the world, which I encouraged her to do. And I even said, well, Aunt, uh, Aunt uh, Josie, her name was not Josie. I won't identify her further. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But I said, why don't you go on a trip, take someone, and have a wonderful time? She said, no. She said, I would not enjoy it unless I'm with you-know-who. You-know-who, you know, her husband. And once he was gone, pull down the blinds, feel sorry for yourself the rest of your life, and then die. That's not what God wants. She was not converted. She did not understand. God had not called her yet. We do have a hope. And we'd better practice that hope and put our faith and trust in God. So we sorrow. 
and the winds will sorrow, and the church will sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we better believe that, again, those who sleep in Jesus will rise with him. By this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. God gives the ones who have already died a little honor. may only be a few minutes or a few hours. I don't know, maybe a couple days. At least they get to come up a little bit sooner. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. A literal blast all over this earth. And it is going to be exciting, yes. God knows human nature. They've seen all this stuff on TV. And all the young kids have seen these uh, book, you know, movies about Armageddon and about this and that. And when these things start to happen, a lot of the younger generation, frankly, it's not going to seem as real to them. Satan is very clever. He's put all that false stuff out. But once it begins to hit their station, no more uh, rock or rap music there, no more TV, no more Internet, no more food. And all around them, the earth is shaking and the plaster is falling and all the rest of it. People are sick and dying. They'll begin to picture this is real. Something's going on. Then they'll begin to get scared and aware there is a genuine God. And that's going to happen. So we've got to have that awareness now so we can be there. He will descend with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. We're to be with Christ and Christ's feet will descend that very day to the Mount of Olives. Read Zechariah chapter 14. That's what it says. Therefore, comfort one another. We are to comfort one another. Yes, Christ's coming is real. The resurrection is real. And Christ's coming is soon. It's not going to be forever. But concerning the times and seasons, continuing here in chapter 5, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. When I preach about prophecy, some ignorant people who don't know the Bible say, well, we don't have any idea. And God says, you don't know the day or the hour, and how can you say it's going to be soon? No, the Bible does not say that. We don't know the day and we don't know the hour. Although, frankly, as some of us discussed in a sort of a doctrinal discussion, I think Mr. Ames was there and we even had Dr. Tabor and the Greek and stuff a while back, why uh, it, that was present tense. No one knoweth, Jesus said, at that time. Maybe a few months or years before it happens, they will know in a sense. Didn't say they'd never know, but right then they didn't know because it says even Jesus didn't know. If you follow me, he put himself in the same boat at that time while he was still in the flesh. Do you think for one minute that Jesus Christ now made fully God again, sitting at the right hand of God, doesn't have any idea when he's coming back? Of course he does. But he says, you're not to be ignorant concerning the times. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, as it will come unexpectedly on the world. For when they say... These preachers who believe in the rapture or when they believe in all this other stuff, peace and safety. And when the beast power, the people over in Berlin and Russia, I mean, and, and uh, Rome and elsewhere, they're going to be clinking their beer steins up and down the Kapurstendam and, and, and celebrating those rotten Americans. Now we're the top dog. German Uberalis. They're going to be rejoicing. And up and down the Via Veneto in Rome and up and down the Champs Elysees in Paris, if they're still part of that system, they're going to be rejoicing. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. They won't be ready as pains, labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But, read verse 4, you, brethren, and I'm speaking to you, brethren, here, the same thing, are not in darkness. You should not be in darkness, so this day overtake you as a thief. You see, you're supposed to at least know the general time period, be aware, be alert, be watching, and understand overall. Therefore, let us not... 
uh, thief, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So our eyes should be open. We should be watching these world events and knowing pretty well the general time. Therefore, let us not sleep as others, but let us watch and be sober, be alert, be self-controlled and understand what's happening, which we're told to do, to understand the signs of the times. Now let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 at this point, and uh, you can get my turning here correctly. Philippians 1. I'm going to begin reading here in verse 19, just breaking into the thought. Paul writes, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation. He talked about it in the earlier verses. As you look at it, he was in chains. Did Paul have a wonderful life? Beaten five times with the Jews, 39 lashes. Many times by Gentiles, beyond 40 lashes. Stripes all over his back, loss of blood, gasping for breath while the beating continued. Stoned and Lystra, left in a pool of blood outside a city. Somehow miraculously revived and carried white on and went right back through those cities saying that we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That's what he said. Acts 14, right there, read it. So that's what happened to Paul. And finally he laid down his head on the chopping block at the end with faith in God, not whimpering around and saying, well, everything's got to be peaceful. No, he didn't say that. But he said, I know that this will turn out for my salvation, these trials, through your faith or through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Mr. O'Gwen gave his life as a living sacrifice, not perfectly, he'd be the first to say that, but outstandingly, by all the knowledge that I have, outstandingly, as a living sacrifice. And he did not fear death. I talked to him, well, the last one to talk to him, I think, before he left here at the conference, I suggested he get a checkup when I first prayed for him here. Then later I went by to see him and asked him to get a checkup. He did not wish to do that. He wished to trust in God. And then again we asked later. But he wanted to trust in God and he did that, I'm sure. And God allowed him to die. You might say, oh, wow, God let him down. No, he knew he might die. We know that people do die. People have always died. Does that mean we turn away from trusting God and never anoint anyone again? No, brethren, that would be the worst thing you can do. Because most people who trust in God are going to be healed. But some died before age 70. Some live a long time after age 70. But along the way, a lot of us have been healed and will be healed. I just heard about a wonderful healing of a lady over in Ireland that I prayed for a few weeks ago. Then I had a lady in the church back here who had an unusual malady, and I prayed for her, and she was healed very quickly. Others are healed all the time in God's church. I mean real healings, not rounding a coal with orange juice. So healings do carry right on, but once in a while, God lets us die. So he said... I want to magnify God in my body, whether by life or by death. That's what Paul said. I'm willing to die for Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. In other words, my purpose in living is to reflect Jesus Christ. That was Mr. Gwen's purpose. But to die is gain. In other words, if, if you're to die in faithfully, you gain in a sense because you can't lose your reward anymore. You've made it. Mr. Gwen has undoubtedly made it. He's in God's kingdom in a sense. He'll soon be there. He's in the bosom of Christ. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet I, what I choose, I cannot tell. He seemed to be thinking out loud as he wrote this letter. For I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart. He said, I actually would rather die. I'm tired of all the beatings. I'm tired of getting thrown in jail. I'm getting tired. And I'd rather depart and be with Christ. 
which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And as he thought about it, he continued writing, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. And God did allow him to live a few more years after he wrote this letter. But from all that I know, and I've studied the epistles of Paul exhaustively, Paul probably died at age 66 or 68. He probably didn't live to be age 70. I'm undoubtedly several years older than he ever lived to be. But boy, the life he did live and the, the, the service of God he packed into those years was way beyond what we do in this life. Just giving and giving, sacrificing, serving all day long, continually. Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24 and this is a very important thing that we understand in this principle. I sometimes use this as part of the offertory, but I want to give it to you here now. Proverbs chapter 24. Oh, I can't uh, find it here quickly. You may find it before me. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10. God tells us here, If you faint in the day of adversity, trials and tests, we're having a trial. Your faith is small. Don't give up and quit when the going gets hard. Don't do that. Deliver those who are drawn to death. Hold back those coming to the slaughter. Which is the latest, greatest slaughter in human history? The one just ahead of us. You know that. Christ said, there's never been a time like that before. No, nor ever shall be. If you say, surely we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? Who, who, he who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will not he render to each man according to his works? What we do, the service we perform. Yes, we'd better reach out to the world with Ezekiel warning. We better try to help them not stumble to the slaughter. We better preach God's gospel, Christ's warning with every fiber of our being. That's what God wants us to do. Not be uh, chicken-livered, not give up and quit, not be quitters, not be scared. Say, I will serve my God even unto death if I have to. That's what all the servants of God did. Let's go on out to Daniel chapter 12. As you know, chapter 11, verse 40, he talks about the time of the end and then in chapter 12, he carries right on. And at that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble. The same thing Jesus talked about, the great tribulation, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who's written in the book. And many of those who sleep, you see, those who are dead, like Mr. Gwynn, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. And that's what many of us look forward to, to rise to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt because they will turn aside. They will make excuses. They will become cynical and turn away from God. Those who are wise, do you have wisdom? Do you see the big picture, the very purpose of human existence? Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many whose hearts are in the work of the great God of creation at the end of the age, in the greatest crusade in modern history, preparing the way for the King of Kings. Those who turn many to righteousness shall shine like the stars forever and ever. We want to focus on that. We will best honor God. We will best honor Christ. And we will best honor our friend, John O'Gwen, by doing this, by giving our life to God and serving His people and doing His work. That is what He and they would want us to do.